The Psalms are easily, I would say, some of the best or some of the most beloved parts of the Bible. We always, I think, are seemingly running to the Psalms. Whenever we're tired, whenever we're confused, whenever we are exhausted, whenever we are hurt, when we are at our lowest, it seems to me, at least, at least I'll, I'll tell you my own sort of, my own feelings, is that I run to these beloved songs. They are some of the most beautiful parts of scripture, but I also think what makes them so beloved, so cherished, is, is that they're so relatable. The Psalms, if you read them, especially those of the psalmist David, uh, have, I think, some of the most gut-wrenching lines in all of Scripture. But also, it's just this marvelous fact that David or whoever, Asaph or whoever was writing the Psalms, they are pouring out the deepest parts of their soul to God the Father. And they're doing this in a way that is very human. In a way that I think we can relate to. Or in a way that seems perhaps a little too familiar with us. I think that's one of the interesting things about the Psalms is they are concerned with people and places and situations that are very foreign to us. That are very, uh, very ancient. And yet, by the same token, they're very familiar. We can almost feel as though we are going through the same sort of things that this psalmist is going through. Which is just to say that the problems that humans have been facing haven't really changed much. Even though the world around us is constantly changing and evolving and moving and and constantly developing the, the same sort of frustrations that humans have been going through. We've been going through since the beginning of time really. And in a way, it makes sense that the, the first psalm is one that helps us perhaps to understand maybe not even just the rest of the psalms, but the rest of the Bible. If you know anything about the, the book of Psalms, really, if you want to understand it from a, we could say, a literary sense, there's five books within this book, in a way. There's different sections of the psalms that each close with its own doxology, so to speak. And it's not by accident that Psalm 1, as we know it, is Psalm 1. It was put there, of course, inspired by God, but also by those who were compiling scriptures, put there first. And I think it's because it's a foundational sort of psalm. Its lines, I think, help us to understand perhaps one of the most formative truths in all of life. Namely, the difference between trees and chaff. Actually, look at verse 3. As the psalmist says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Here the psalmist, whoever he was, uses this imagery between trees and chaff to sort of drive home the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who are blessed by the righteousness of God and those who are not. And he uses this song, so to speak, to drive this difference and make it very stark, very apparent. And in fact, we could really just summarize this as the the, the difference between the the righteous and the wicked is just that. Like the difference between the redwood of the Sierra Nevada out in California and a peanut shell that you throw on the ground. That's the difference. 
That's how great the contrast is. And in many ways, I think this is not just the theme of this song. It's very thematic for the rest of the Bible. Driving home the difference between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. I think we could very well use this, this first of the Psalms that opens up this glorious, we could, we could term it, hymn book of the people of Israel to understanding the rest of what God wants to tell us in his word. That is this, there is a pathway to blessing. A pathway to standing in the lights of being known by God without having fear, without having guilt, without having dread. What is that pathway? What does it look like? Well, to understand this crucial difference that he is going to draw out and tease out and, and sort of unpack here it, it, between not just trees and chaff, but the difference between righteous and unrighteous, I think we have to notice three lessons this morning. Three lessons that I think we see here that help us understand this difference. And the lesson, first of all, number one, is a lesson about resistance. A lesson about resistance. Notice number one, or notice verse one, notice what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now this man is sort of like an archetypal man. It's not referencing a specific person per se, but sort of the ideal. The ideal of the one who is blessed, the one who is truly happy. We might sort of shrug our shoulders at that idea of translating the word happy. It seems too light. It seems too fluffy. But essentially, that's what it's saying. Happy is the one. And happy in the eternal sense, in the ultimate sense. Filled is the one. He is satisfied. He has fulfillment. And the one, you could say, is happy and fulfilled and blessed is the one who, yes, resists who doesn't do these certain things, which is an interesting way to frame what I think we often understand in terms of one who is blessed. And it comes, uh, first of all, as he says, by resisting certain things. The one who is happy, the one who is blessed, he refuses to entertain all of the allure, all of the offerings of those who oppose the Lord. That's essentially what he's saying. That's the common denominator amongst all of these who are classified as wicked or sinners or scoffers. All of them, they all have the same thing in common. They love, they love to mock and disparage God any chance they get. And he's identifying these ones with those who would say that they have nothing but hostility towards the things of the Lord. Their counsel, or you could translate that word wisdom, their, their advice if you notice, is put in terms of this sort of slide into convenience. You go from walking, you go to there, you, you go further uh, along with their advice, along with their counsel, and you, you end up standing, and then you go further and further, and you end up sitting. There's this progression from what you perhaps first believe. This is a, prov- a progression from conviction more to, to, towards comfortability. And this is... Of course, something that the Lord's adversaries are insistent upon. Their method, their counsel, their advice towards finding true happiness, towards true blessing. It's just as legitimate as God's. 
Here, listen to what we have to say. Listen to the words of our philosophers and of our scholars. Listen to our experts. And and, and gradually and slowly, the more that's being listened to, the more that's being entertained, you go from just walking with them to standing with them to sitting with them. This is the sort of progression. This is the picture that this psalmist is painting in front of us. It's one who is coaxing another to listen to his words. And who needs God's wisdom then? Certainly not these individuals. They're not entertaining any of the wisdom of God. In fact, they're dismissing of it. They're refusing of it. And in so doing, they're abandoning any hope of ever sort of finding blessing, ever at all. It only comes from above. But these wicked, these scoffers, these sinners, they they don't really care much for that. Because they're dominated by hostility. That's what the word wicked means. It means literally hostile towards God. They're consumed by it. They are, we could, we could call them, lump them all together, God opposers who are full of their own counsel. They're full of their own wisdom and they're eager for others to join them. And that's where the resistance comes in. Because you notice, he says, blessed, happy is the one who does not entertain their counsel. Who does not listen to their wisdom. Who does not follow in the path of what they are trying to convince you of. Resistance probably is a word that brings to mind a really specific image. A word that perhaps is sort of filled with all these connotations of of blood and sweat and struggle, of, of like a resistance fighter standing up to the man, so to speak. And it has all these great sort of heroic overtones. I think we have a natural affinity to those things. But I think the, the Bible's portrait of resistance looks a lot less like, you know, Lancelot in the court of King Arthur. And more it looks like laying down and listening. And in fact, that's what the psalmist says. Because you notice, he says in verse 1, Blesses the man who resists, who resists this counsel, who does not follow in this progression of rebellion. But instead, what does he do and how does he resist? But his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You want to know what resistance looks like? It looks like that. It looks like delighting yourself, as he says, in the law of God. This is a very surprising message, I think. A very subversive sort of truth as he's painting this picture of, yes, resisting. But this resisting doesn't look like a heroic skirmish on a battlefield. Instead, what it looks like is muttering to yourself the words of God on your bed at nighttime. (laughs) That's essentially this picture. That's what the word meditate means. It means to mutter or to repeat. It's almost like you're talking to yourself. Resistance looks like that. And he's painting this picture of this continual delight that the blessed one has in the words of God's wisdom. Especially the words of God's law, which is an interesting uh, sort, of, uh, sort of section of scripture to note. If you want to translate it accurately, it's the Torah. It's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of your Old Testament. Is essentially what he's referencing. 
That that is where his delight is. He's delighting. He's being consumed by the truth that is, that is revealed in that section of Scripture. Which I think, I don't know about you, but I think we're often prone to think a little bit too narrowly when we think of that word law. As if it's all concerned about obeying a to-do list. And it, if, you're, if you're thinking in that way, that, that this psalmist is calling for people to rejoice in obeying a to-do list, well, it, you need to broaden what you think about when you think about the law or think about the Torah. Because no one rejoices in a to-do list. <laughs> and indeed, that's not what he's calling these people to rejoice in and worship. Just like the rest of Scripture... The Torah, the Pentateuch, what does it do? What is it there for? What is it trying to convey? It has a specific point. It is not just do this or do that. It is showing us what? The heart of God. That's what all those laws are about. That's what all those stories are about. That's what all of those amazing accounts of Scripture are about. Those narratives, those very fascinating details, the very specific forms of worship that were supposed to follow the the exaltation of Yahweh. What were they all about? They were showing the heart of God. A heart of God that is brimming with hope and promise and covenantal love. Yes, a covenantal love that extends to people that even break his heart on several occasions. And yet, that's how God was revealing himself. So I think in a better way uh, to understand this so we don't just think narrowly about the law. You could say it this way, that he is putting his delight in what? In the revelation of Jehovah God. That's what he's putting his delight in. And how God revealed himself. Which for us means something I think a little bit different than this psalmist. Because the revealed word of God for us is what? It's the whole thing. The whole Bible that you have in front of you or if you're scrolling on your iPad. The same thing. It's the revealed Word of God. This is how God has revealed himself to all of creation. And that is what we are called to delight in. That is what we are called to repeat and rehearse to ourselves. And there's, yes, there's a great sense of blessing and delight to be found. And how God has revealed himself throughout all of these pages. Yes, even in the Torah. Even in the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Those which we often assume are just talking about things to do. Actually, remember, uh, you don't have to go there, but in Joshua 1, there's a great parallel passage to Psalm 1. Where he's talking about finding delight and meditating on the words of the Lord day and night. Joshua 1.8 says this. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This of course comes at that very moment where Joshua was stepping into the limelight so to speak. As the leader of the people of Israel. And here the same thing is being reaffirmed. As was reaffirmed earlier to Moses, his, his predecessor. It's the fact of what? That the words of God's revelation are central and foundational to the people's blessing. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The same thing repeated. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, these very familiar words. God is talking to the people of Israel, and he says, These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What's the point? He's getting them to see and he's urging his people to see that God's revealed word is all that they would need. This is where they were to be and to live. And this is how they, yes, they were able to resist. Why do you think all the kings, and they failed at this, Remember, if you remember, if you stretch your mind back when we went through the books of Kings, what were they supposed to do every time a new king got inaugurated into office? What were they supposed to do? Write in their own handwriting the words of the law. That was part of a way by which what? They could remind themselves, but also to redevote themselves to what was to be the central foundational thing of all of Israelite life. It is the reveal, the revelation of who God is. Of his love, of his promise, of his mercy, of yes, his promise also of judgment. It's a reminder that the God who has revealed himself is very concerned, yes, with our hearts. And here the psalmist in Psalm number one is, is sort of continuing that same thread of thought. That the words of God, the words of God's revelation are foundational. They're the bedrock of God's people's blessing. And there's only one way then that we are able to resist the wisdom of the wicked, the wisdom of the world that says, Come follow our ways, come with us, is by rehearsing the words of God. Again, notice he says, Don't follow their counsel, but rather delight in the law of the Lord. Delight, find your fill, find everything that you need, and how God has revealed himself. And more than that, on it, meditate day and night continually. Let it be the theme that is in your mind and on your lips. That's how we resist. That's how we refuse to entertain the allure of what the world has to offer. If you're scrolling social media any time of day, you're going to be hit with a stream of things to consume, to, uh, to try to convince you of. They're going to be filled with all kinds of counsel, all kinds of advice. And it may or may not be coming from someone who is giving you advice from the words of God. It may come from some other source. How do we resist the stream of knowledge that is so so fast and is almost screaming at us all the time? By delighting in how God has revealed himself. You resist by getting in the words of the Lord. By making that your meditation day and night. That's where true blessing comes from. It it comes from constantly filling yourself. Not with what the world says, but with what the Lord says. The blessed man is a man who resists. A lesson about resistance. Number two, secondly, I think also we see here a lesson about subsistence. 
A lesson about subsistence, or we could say it this way, what the blessed man feeds on. What is he feeding himself on? Notice verse number three. Very fascinating picture, as we read a moment ago. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. A very vivid picture that he's painting here, obviously, of a tree that's been planted, and now it's growing and it's flourishing by a flowing river. And this river is the source of all of his life. Its roots are, are plunging deep into that soil and it's soaking up all these nutrients. And that's where all his nourishments are coming from. This tree that he's referencing is not just some flimsy little sapling. It's a sturdy, mighty, strong oak. That's sort of the picture he's getting into their mind's eye. And it's a fruitful tree. It's a durable tree. It's able to withstand all kinds of weather conditions. It is able to produce fruit. It is able to produce shade. It is a tree that stands as a testament to what, really? Because you, you see, I think it's so important that we don't miss where or what makes this tree to flourish and to thrive. And really, it's, it's not really about the tree at all. The, it's not really about the tree at all. Actually, it's where the tree has been planted. Notice verse 3 again. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Interestingly enough, that word planted, it could also be translated transplanted. Which just, in, in my mind, brings to mind this idea that this tree didn't originate by this river. It's not like it was just happened to grow there and it, it just happened to be there and it just happened to be strong and mighty and sturdy. Actually, no, the picture that's in the mind's eye of the psalmist, of the songwriter, is that there was an intentional purpose by some sort of cultivator of planting this tree here. He took it from somewhere else and he put it here on purpose. So you could say that all of this tree is flourishing is actually due to someone else. The way in which this tree is able to bear fruit, the way in which it's able to be sturdy and steady, all of that is, is directly owed to someone else, the person who transplanted it there. And the same thing is true for us and the blessings of the God. The blessed person, you see, is not blessed Because they are so tree-like, because they're so sturdy and strong in and of themselves, because they're so strapping. Actually, the blessed person, as the picture here paints us, is, is blessed by God, and that's why they're strong and sturdy and productive and fruitful. You and I, we are, we are made to be like a tree only as we have been transplanted, if you will, by the words and by the spirit of the living God. That is where our blessing comes from. You see, just like this tree that's been transplanted, in order that it might thrive, the blessings of God can only be received. They're only gifts that we can receive. A tree can't replant itself. It can't make itself into being more fruitful. It's, and, and nor can we work our way into God's favor or God's blessing. This is something that God does to us. And again, here the same is true. 
God and his spirit and his word. That's the effects that it has on us. God's spirit, he is always constantly working on us, ruining us, making us firm in the soil, we could say, of what God's word says. And that's what allows us to prosper. That's what allows us to grow. How can we become as blessed people, yielding fruit and being unwithering through all the changing of the seasons and being prosperous no matter what happens in life? What makes that true? It's where we're planted. It's the fact that we have our roots not in the wisdom of the world, not in the counsel of the wicked, but in what? In the rich, verdant, vibrant soil of what God has revealed about himself. Later in the Psalms, you don't have to go there, you can write it or you can visit it with me in Psalm 92, a great little parallel passage. Psalm 92, verse number 12, listen to this. It says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. What makes the righteous flourish? Where they're planted. It's where they've been planted and what they are subsisting on. You see, the fruit that we bear in our lives is not the result of, of, of our work. It's the result of God's work in us and on us. That's what ultimately matters. Paul talks about this. In Philippians chapter number 2 and verse number 13 where he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, the emphasis is what? It is God who works in you. Just as the forester is taking a tree from one place and planting it in another in order for it to thrive. That's what happens with us. That's what happens with God's people. It is only as we are subsisting on that that we are ever able to resist, ever able to flourish. And if we try to subsist on anything else, we're going to end up like the chaff that, the, that is just thrown away and tossed to the wind. That's what he says in verse 4. The wicked are not so. They are not like a tree. They are not planted. They are not productive. They are not unwithering. They are not prosperous. He says they are not so. Instead, they are like what? They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, of course, is a term that refers to the the dry sort of casing on the head of a piece of grain. And if you want to get something else in your mind's eye, I like to think of it as like a peanut shell. It's just dry and arid, it's light, it's not, it's, it's not nourishing at all. It's good for nothing other than just feeding livestock, making sort of fodder for all your animals. It can't be digested by humans, it has no substance, it's largely worthless. And in fact, that's the point. Uh, any sort of uh, farmer, any sort of person who's working the land, if you collect all the grain, at least in this day, what would they do? They would, they would take all of the husk of grain and they would throw it into the air. And all of the grain heads would fall back to the ground, but all of the chaff would be blown away by the wind. Because it's worthless. It has no substance to it. And you don't want it with your grain anyways. 
a process of, of winnowing, so to speak. And I think now, I think he's bringing home this contrast into a full and complete picture. Because whereas the tree is rooted, it's firm, it's steady, it's fruitful. Instead, the chaff is what? It's rootless, it's barren, it has no weight to it. And the same is true of those who are made righteous and those who are unrighteous. The righteous are the rooted ones. The fruitful ones. The ones who are steady. Why? Not because of themselves. But because of who has worked in them. Of who has transplanted them. And who they are feeding on. But instead the unrighteous, the wicked, they are rootless. They are listless. They are weak and airy. Like chaff in the wind. You see, the point is this, that blessing only comes to those who are planted in the rich soil of God's revealed word. And then they are made to soak in all of that life-giving water. All of that life-giving nutrients of how God has revealed himself. That's how we are able to be steadied and sure. Listening to the wisdom of the world is like trying to survive on peanut shells. There's no nutritional value. There's nothing of substance. Trying to feed on chaff is going to make you like chaff. That's what he's saying. You become like what you feed on. So those who are now taking counsel from the wicked, those who are not resisting, those who are entertaining the advice of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers, what are they doing? They are attempting to try to survive and subsist on indigestible rubbish. (laughs) In the end, it just results in their ruin. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 17, 13. That he says, the nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he, meaning the Lord, will rebuke them. And they will flee far away. Notice, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind. And whirling dust before the storm. That's all that man's wisdom amounts to. All of the the great philosophers and schemes of scientists and mathematicians and all of those who deem themselves the experts in our day. And they are trying to propose to you all of the counsel and advice on the way the world works. And they are trying to influence you with all kinds of harebrained ideas. You know what their wisdom amounts to? Dust in the wind. It's chaff. What are you listening to? What are you feeding yourself? What are you feeding your soul? My friends, there is only one life-giving source of life. And it is this book of life that you have in front of you. That's That's what makes you sturdy and strong and fruitful and productive. It's the word of God that works in us and on us through the spirit of God. A lesson of subsistence, a lesson about resistance, and lastly, number three, a lesson about existence. A lesson about existence, because this brings us, this naturally segues us into this, I think, ultimate difference between trees and chaff that he's been noticing throughout this psalm, between the righteous and the wicked, and has to do with our ultimate existence. Notice what he says, verse 5, back in Psalm 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And here he's once again driving home this contrast, stating very clearly, he's not mincing any words. This is what's going to become of those who are wicked. Those are the ones who are going into eternity opposing the Lord. They have uh, never entertained the things of God. They've never been open to receiving the wisdom and truth that God has revealed. They've gone into eternity stiff-arming God and all of his truth and all of his grace. They are the ones who will not be able to stand, he says. Those who've scoffed and snickered at people who've devoted their lives to God. Those are the ones. They're not going to be able to stand. Because why? They have no roots. And why do they have no roots? Because they've not been planted by the water of the word. Their way, he says, is nothing but oblivion. He says they will perish. It's a certainty. And why? Because they've chosen to fill themselves on nothing but their own wisdom. It's chaff all the way through. Those who are hostile towards God will, yes, be treated like chaff in the end. Those who go into eternity, never having believed, never having put their trust, never having, if you can get the picture, being transplanted by the Spirit of God. Those are the ones... Who are tossed aside in the end. As John the Baptist says of that great horrible day about Jesus. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. And gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what's coming for those who are filling themselves with nothing but the counsel of the wicked and the wisdom of the world. They're filling themselves with nothing but hopeless drivel. Chaff. And interestingly enough, that's where this psalm ends. A beautifully quoted psalm, beautifully written psalm, and it ends almost with a thud. A thud of what's going to come in the end. But we have to get the contrast. Because the contrast couldn't be more beautiful or more hopeful. Because while the wicked cannot stand, while they cannot endure on that awful day of judgment... The contrast is the righteous can and the righteous will stand because the righteous are those who are known by the Lord. Notice again verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish you see, the what, what makes the righteous to stand here? What, what allows them to stand in that awful day when everything is exposed, everything is brought to light, everything that we might try and hide ourselves behind, it cannot stand in the piercing holiness of Jehovah God. In that day, what allows the righteous to stand? It's one thing, that they are known by the Lord, he says. The Lord knows the way... Over the righteous. And that might sound like a curious hope. Being known by God. That might actually sound scary. (laughs) But actually I would say it's one of the most profound and precious things in all of the Bible. Because you see, to be known by God... 
doesn't just to know them by name. It means a deep and intense and a personal sort of knowing. It means to see, but not just to see as I see you, but to see the person's heart and, just, and their soul. It implies this deep and intense, intimate relationship. When he says that he knows, it means he knows. The ins and the outs of those who are deemed righteous, God knows them inside and out. And in a way, I think this is, What we're after, if we're honest. If we're honest with ourselves, we could say, you know, many would say, I just want to have love in my life or whatever. What's love? If it's not seeing the other person for exactly who they are and loving them anyways. That's sort of the point. That's sort of what's supposed to be being grown through our marriage relationships, right? We're seeing the other person for who they are, faults and warts and all, and loving them anyways. Love is a choice. And this, you see, is what is at the heart of God's revealed word. It tells us. The way in which we are blessed. And it's not by us trying to make ourselves better. It's not by us trying to make ourselves more lovable. It's not by us doing more and trying harder and just working on ourselves more. It's, that's the counsel of the wicked. That's chaff. That's the wisdom of the world that is going to indoctrinate you into something else. Those who are truly blessed are only those who have received And believed God's most foundational message. It's the message of all of scripture. It's that God knows us for who we are. And he dies for us anyways. the, The most foundational message of all of these 66 books. Is that God knows humans for who they are. For all of their faults. For all of their sins. For all of their retribution. For all of their wickedness. For all of their hatred. For all of their propensity towards violence. For all of their propensity towards lust. He knows all of that. And he chooses to die for them anyways. Including you. Sitting here this morning, including me, standing behind this pulpit this morning. He knows all of what is worst about me. And he calls me into his family by and through Christ anyways. That's what it means to be known. You see, this is the best news ever. We might fear, we might, uh, we might be skittish at the idea of being known to that degree. But that's what God's word reveals. You can't hide anything from the searcher of hearts. He knows you. He knows you inside and out. You're good and you're bad. He knows everything about you. And he chooses to call you, to invite you into his beloved family anyways. Into the kingdom of his righteousness anyways. What a blessed and glorious hope. Because you see, that's the point. The hope of our ultimate existence is tethered to nothing but the true and better blessed one. Jesus The Christ. Who comes and yes. Flawlessly fulfills. Every single one of these words. Because if we had just these words. 
A lesson about resistance, a lesson about subsistence, a lesson about existence. And we were given the idea that this is what we need to do. If we were given that idea that this is what we need to be, that would not be a very hopeful message. Because again, who has ever fulfilled these things ultimately? How's it going with resisting the wisdom of the world? Perhaps we've entertained that recently. We've failed even recently. We need someone else to fulfill all these things for us. And praise be to God, that's who Jesus is. You see, Jesus fulfills every single syllable of scripture, including these words. And I cannot help but think, in Matthew chapter 4, we have that well, let me just read it. I'll just, I'll just read it. We'll, we'll go quickly. But uh, Matthew chapter 4 is the account of what? It's Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And I want you to, to, as I read these words, be thinking of Psalm 1. And notice what happens. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter The devil, Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a high, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. How does Jesus resist? How is Jesus able to subsist in this time of famished fasting? By rehearsing the words of his heavenly Father. See, Jesus is the true and better blessed man. Of Psalm 1. Because in Jesus' resistance to Satan's wisdom. And, and he refuses to turn the stones to bread. To throw himself off the top of the temple. To kneel before that adversary. What is he thereby doing? He's showcasing that the subsistence. The thing that feeds those who are blessed. Is nothing more or less than God's own words. And that the ultimate existence of those who are blessed is wrapped up in worshiping and serving that God alone. You see, the battle for your blessedness and mine was already fought and won by Christ. It was fought here. It was fought for the rest of Jesus' life, culminating in the ultimate victory when he was pierced and died on a cross. What would the wisdom of the world say? Get down off that cross, Jesus You're supposed to be the Messiah. Aren't you supposed to be the one that's leading your people into victory over Rome? And look at you now. 
The counsel of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers was what? It's Peter. Don't, you don't need to go to the cross, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan, because that's the counsel of the wicked. It's through him. Jesus alone that we resist. You might trust yourself a lot. You might put a lot of confidence in your ability to resist the counsel of the wicked and the wisdom of the world and all of those things that are trying to influence you. But I'm here to tell you, don't. You can't resist in your own ability, with your own fortitude, with your own might. If you imagine yourself as a knight in shining armor, wielding your sword against the wiles of the devil, you got it wrong. You resist by laying down and listening to the words of God and making that what you delight in, making that what you feed on, and that's where your existence comes from. It's through him alone that all of that is able to happen. And that's what I think it means when we live by faith. The blessed life is the faithful life. It's the life of which we have been planted by God himself. Feeding on what Christ has done. My friends, that is the life we are called to. A life of blessedness comes because of who we are living on. Where we are planted. What we are filling our minds with, my friends, this morning. Whether you're a sinner or saint. The words that you have in front of you. These words of scripture. They are words that impart life. They impart blessing. And they show us how. Through Christ alone. Where are you planted this morning? Where are you getting all of your information? (laughs) Whether it's just in general in life. Or even more ultimately. Where are you planted for eternity? Are you planted in the sturdy rich soil of God's word? His revelation? Or are you planted in your own wisdom? What are you feeding on this morning? Are you trying to get by on chaff? Or are you soaking and digesting the rich words of God's word of life? That's the difference. That's the difference between those who are not blessed and those who are blessed. That's the difference between trees and chaff. That's the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous. Where are you this morning? Let us pray.